Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. It's all about trust and relationships. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Andrew Sherburn. Andrew is co-founder and executive director of Film Scene, Iowa City's nonprofit cinema, and a producer-director at Northland Films. His most recent film, Saving Brinton, was named one of the best movies of 2018 by the Washington Post. Andrew's filmography includes Gold Fever, released in 2013, which earned the International Federation of Human Rights Film Award, Forgotten Miracle, released in 2010, and Pond Hockey, released in 2008. His films have played at over 80 festivals in 43 countries. He is currently at work on two features, Hockeyland, a coming-of-age documentary in Minnesota's North Country, and The Workshop, a portrait of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. We dig into Andrew's journey as a filmmaker and community arts leader who explores connection to Minnesota and hockey as a rich area for human stories. Andrew shares the focus of Hockeyland and his observational verite style of filmmaking. We also discuss how Saving Britain came to be and how the framing of the story changed after meeting Mike Zaz. We talk about the importance of collaboration and community, arts, and the success of the Strengthen, Grow, Evolve campaign, and why Iowa City is the greatest small city for the arts. I appreciated Andrew's perspective uh, regarding the ongoing dedication to improving the arts community, saying, quote, it's a process and a commitment to always improving what we're doing here. As a fan of film, hockey, community, collaboration, Minneapolis, and Iowa City, it was a treat sitting down with Andrew. It was an absolute pleasure having him join me on the podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind for our guests, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is fun. Um, well, uh, let's see. Uh, my name is Andrew Sherburn. I am a co-founder uh, and current executive director at Film Scene. Uh, I'm also a, a documentary filmmaker. Uh, so I've uh, I've worked on a number of uh, feature film projects um, with my longtime collaborator Tommy Haynes, who's also here in Iowa City, and um, yeah, uh, you know I, I think for the most part I've been involved in film in one way or another for the last fifteen years, and um, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun and uh, allows me a lot of freedom um, and kind of uh, initiative to to work uh, in the directions that I like, and uh, and that's been a, that's been great. Thank you. Uh, and so uh, you said Tommy lives here in the in Iowa City. Now Iowa City does not have a uh, a strong hockey uh, scene, <laughs> and I know a lot of your documentaries have been dedicated to to hockey. Where where does the interest in, in ice hockey come from? 
Well, I'm originally from Minnesota. So I, I was born in St. Paul, Minnesota. I grew up there, um, uh, you know, and, and didn't, I moved to Iowa uh, when I was 18 to go to college at Grinnell College. And so that's what brought me to Iowa. Uh, went back to Minneapolis for a few years before landing in Iowa City. So uh, I've got those Minnesota roots and anybody who grew up in Minnesota uh, put on a pair of skates at some point during their, their childhood. Um, I wasn't a huge hockey player. Uh, Tommy uh, grew up even further north um, in the Iron Range, so he's got a little bit more of the the hockey bona fides. But uh, you know, that was just what we did in the winter. Uh, you know, we would sled and we would skate. Um, so I'm not a great hockey player, but uh, I did it every year, and uh, it's just part of part of who I am. Thanks. Yeah, and I lived in uh, Minneapolis for about uh, about 15 years, uh, and moved to Iowa City in 2009. But when I lived in Minneapolis. One of the things I loved was uh, when it was winter time, just driving by all the different parks and seeing all of the rinks that were set up. Just make, yeah, making hockey accessible to in all these neighborhoods, and also seeing a park district zamboni on the back of a truck going from park to park, and even Lake of the Isles having a warming yeah. house set up on the you know on the lake, right? So, but having multiple rinks yeah. and lights set up, it just it was uh, there's something about that uh, from, you know, as an outsider and a hockey fan, I appreciated that. Uh, so with your, with your movies to that focused on, on, on hockey, what, what's the driving inspiration or, uh, you know, what, what motivated you to make, to try to capture the, the hockey scene in its different, different forms? Well, you landed on some of it right there. Um, you know, what's really special in Minnesota is it's just part of kind of the fabric of the community and it's just the the culture up there. And, and that's made possible, honestly, because of the weather. Um, but hockey becomes accessible when you have frozen lakes everywhere. And so you don't, you know, it can be an incredibly expensive sport if you're growing up, uh, you know, anywhere where it doesn't freeze solid in the winter. Um, ice time costs a lot of money and there's a lot of traveling involved. But in Minnesota, you put your skates on your stick and you walk to the pond and it's free. Um, so that was something that we thought was really special and unique and, and worth celebrating. And I would say, you know, all of our films um, really examine these ideas of community and tradition um, up against uh, modernity and kind of, uh, you know, a changing world. And so that's what we're really interested in, whether it's, uh, you know, this tradition of outdoor hockey uh, or whether it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, filmmaker or you know old films uh, in small towns in Iowa which was which is our last film saving britain and so um it's just i i think to me that is fertile ground to talk about what really matters um and how we keep uh, some of those alive while we uh still progress into the future yeah and i i would have to say living in minnesota i feel like the uh the the boys state uh championship uh kind of that that tournament probably has more energy in Minnesota than like the, the NC2A college basketball tournament, right? That how, like just how engaged everybody is from, from the lighthearted side of it, right? Like some of the hockey hair, uh, like the all, the all hair teams to just what, what's going on to uh, before I moved to uh, well, before I moved to the twin cities and before the, uh, the Minnesota moose, played that right that or, or prior to the excel energy center right mm -hmm. but the the old hockey center there i remember footage of high school championships where the the cameras were rocking because the sold out crowd for for a hockey state championship and everybody going just 
absolutely crazy. And that, that energy is infectious. Right. And so I love, I love too, how you're talking about that connection. It's something as simple as we, we can go to a frozen lake in our neighborhood right? mm-hmm. uh, to like just all eye, all eyes on this state tournament at a certain time, just as there's something compelling about that connection. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly that was my experience as a kid, you know, back when there were, you know, four stations on your television. Um, and that was, you know, when the high school championship was uh, was on TV, that's what everybody was watching. I mean, I, I remember going to dinner parties with my parents and uh, the TV would just be on in the other room playing the boys hockey championships, the state hockey championships and uh, and everybody kind of eat and watch at the same time. And we'd all gather around when it got, you know, to the third period. Um, you know, so I think that is still very much alive up there. I mean, now now there's a lot more competition for people's attention, but that uh, I think because of its incredible storied history in Minnesota, you know, they still sell out uh, the 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 tournament at the XL Energy Center. So you know, there's what is that eighteen thousand people, nineteen thousand people, right. um, packed into an NHL arena to watch high school hockey, uh, and it's it's amazing. It's, it's one of the best atmospheres for a sporting event you can ever find. Um, and everybody there is, is passionate about the sport, about their team. And these are people who, you know, for for the most part, these are fans who came to watch their, you know, the kids who are, you know, live down the block from them. I mean, these are community, um, based fans that are showing up and that is what's really special. Um, that, that kids are playing for their hometown. They're playing for their community. Um, there's this tradition that has been passed down over generations in a lot of these places. And, um, and that's, so, so our, our most recent feature hockey land, uh, which, um, is currently in post-production. We don't have a premiere date set yet, but hopefully, hopefully soon we'll be getting it out there certainly before the end of the year. Um, that's what it's really about. It's about uh, these places in northern Minnesota, um, these these small towns um, and, and and growing cities uh, where where hockey is very much uh, woven into the fabric of life every day there. And um, it's something that is is certainly um, you know fascinating. Um, and as a Minnesotan, something that is you know is just something that I was uh, you know that, that brings me back to my own childhood and so uh, it's something that we wanted to share with people because I think it is sometimes known outside of Minnesota um, but uh, but something that I think more people should have a chance to see. Thank you. I want to talk about uh, uh, Saving Britain, uh, one of your more recent films and I just I just absolutely loved it. Uh, it's for me, it was a, a really moving story. Mike's Mike's arc in his story for me was uh, really moving, uh, uh, bordering on heartbreaking at times as he was trying to get uh, people interested in saving these films. So I and and his journey was great, but and then also just seeing these films. Uh, just curious, how did you even find out about Mike and and this story? Because it, you know, if Honestly, if I just heard about it without seeing any images, I don't know how compelling it would be. And then you see it, and it's such a moving story on multiple levels, both kind of Britain and what that the family was doing, but also Mike's arc. And I was just curious how you even came upon that as a subject. Sure. Well, uh, you know, part of the... Uh... Part of the beauty, I guess, of being a, a filmmaker in Iowa is that uh, there's not a lot of competition. So people pitch us stories a lot. Uh, and, and this happened to be something that, uh, you know, we got a phone call that said, hey, there's this guy uh, just down the road in, in Washington, Iowa, um, you know, which is 
30, 30 miles away. Um, and he found this, this amazing collection of, of old films um, from this guy, Frank Brinton, and you should just go down and check it out. Uh, and so we did. And, you know, our interest at the time, not having ever met Mike or not really even knowing much about the film, but hearing that there might be some films from, you know, some of the, the foremost filmmakers of the time, the Lumieres, the Meliers, uh, that was our interest in these old films. Uh, but once we meet Mike um, and, and, you know, the beginning of the film, uh, when we meet Mike in his driveway in the middle of winter, that was really, that was the day that I met Mike really um, truly got to know him. And he, he invites us inside and, and shows us what he has. And I mean, I was just blown away by not just what he had been able to save um, in this incredible bit of history, but by Mike himself um, and his warmth and curiosity and generosity. Uh, and we left that day uh, with a completely different idea of what the film might be, because, you know, we thought this was going to be maybe a historical piece about this kind of lost era or something that happened 100 years ago, but it very much became this contemporary story uh, about a man who uh, loves history, uh, loves his community, uh, and, and spends every day uh, working to save that and preserve that uh, for future generations so that we can, we can better know our history. And so um, Mike's just an incredible person, uh, felt so fortunate to get to know him. And, uh, and the fact that he would let us into his lives in such a, a deep way that we could, we could share his story and, and, um, you know, who he is, his personality with, with other people. I think that was incredibly touching. Yeah. And just as you said, letting, letting you into his life, I'm curious because um, some of the, some of the footage too, that I saw uh, uh, for uh, hockey land is you're sitting with families, with players out. It's not just covering them on the rink and it's not just locker room interviews. Can you walk me through that process? What's that like to build that trust that people will will let you in? I mean, in in a way that's not norm, right? Cam cameras and crew sitting around, but what do you, what is that process for you to build that trust so that you can dig deep on that story? Yeah, well, you know, we the style of filmmaking that uh, that we've kind of our career path has has found for us and that we have gravitated towards is, is more of an observational verite style. So we really want the camera to, to, you know, kind of fade into the background um, to, to stay away from kind of the sit down interview style of uh, filmmaking. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. That's just not, not what we're interested in, or that's not what maybe fits these stories. Um, and so um, both with Saving Britain, with Hockeyland, uh, we really wanted the, the camera to just to, to be present um, and to observe um, the lives of these um of these people who so generously let us let us in and um and so yeah it all uh, you know at the root of that is trust um and building a relationship with uh the people that uh that you're getting to know and it has to be authentic um it has to be real uh, and it takes time um so you know it's it, it's always difficult at first i think for everybody to get accustomed to the filmmaking process and the camera being there um, but once it becomes more natural, you you really do get that um, those those incredibly personal moments um, and 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 the honesty that comes with observational filmmaking. And it's it's a long process. You know, it leads to many many hours, hundreds of hours of footage, um, much of which doesn't always you know make what, what by it can't. We don't. There's not enough time for it all to make the final cut. So it it's a real uh, process in the editing room then to to piece the story together. But um, 
but yeah, it's, it's all about, it's all about trust and it's all about relationships. So that has to be at, at the forefront. Thanks. Uh, I'm curious from an, from an editing and, and narrative arc perspective too, like you said, the, you know, the, the ratio of hours of footage compared to what makes it on, on screen. I'm kind of curious uh, on uh, what, what your kind of just mental process is or, or uh, creative slash kind of operational process to get this arc. That's going to make sense. That's going to have that story payload for some, right? Because you, I, I imagine after hundreds of hours, you know, this story inside and out, but then you have to like step out of it <laughs> so that you can like somebody that's just new to it. How do you convey that? I'm really curious on, on almost editorial or production choices, how you, how you decide to what sticks, what will make this a, a, a consumable arc. Uh, do you mind walking me through that process? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the, because it's such a long drawn out process, um, an observation, filming an observational story, uh, gives us the opportunity to kind of to edit and, and work with the fit footage and then, and then really writing it's, you know, the editing room, putting the edit together is really a writing process, a storytelling process. So we're trying to put the story together and we just keep going back to it and refining it and re-editing it and, or, or sometimes, you know, breaking it up and, and putting a new story together during the process of filming, because, you always want to go in uh, with an open mind. Um, I think the the most interesting films are the ones that you don't have a fully formed opinion of when you go in, um, but you're there because you're curious. Um, and so you want to have an open mind, but it, it does help to have a sense of, okay, what what's a possible ending? What are we, where are our characters going? What do we know from the beginning? So, so with Mike and Saving Britain, it was, well, he wants to bring this back to life. He wants to put on a show. So that was a very loose framework for, you know, A to Z for that film. And with Hockeyland, it's, you know, they're, these kids are, uh, they want to win a state championship. So that's the ultimate goal that we're working towards. But along the way, any number of things can happen. And you don't really know when you go into it. So as you start filming, you start picking up these, these pieces that, uh, that you find compelling. And so you want to make sure that you're pursuing those throughout the filming process because your final product's only as good as kind of what, uh, you know, what footage you've been able to gather along the way. So, you know, shoot, shoot, shoot. Uh, you don't want to overshoot. You don't want to waste um, your time. And it's also important to put the camera down at times, but you want to make sure that you capture those moments that you think might make um, compelling uh, storylines. Uh, and then at the end, you know, it's really, you know, again, it's, it's a process of uh, you figure out what you really have. Sometimes something that you, was an important thing that you saw uh, happening in a person's life. You just don't have the, the footage to tell it. So sometimes those have to go by the wayside. Sometimes other things emerge and or old shoots that you didn't think had much value suddenly have that little nugget um, that, that fit perfectly into a, a through line through the film. So, you know, it's an exhausting process for, for the editor and, and, and Tommy does almost all our editing. So I got to um, tip my hat to him because he's, he's really the one who uh, does the, uh, the, the hard work, uh, the, the, you know, daily just kind of going through that footage and getting to know it inside and out. And, and that's what makes it possible. Thank you. So just backing up a little bit, how did you become interested in filmmaking and, and, maybe even more specifically kind of the, the observational documentary where, where, where did the interest do you, do you remember like 
has it always been like since a little kid you were interested in film and and found your way here or was there uh something that just like a certain thing you saw that triggered it yeah my dad was a photographer and um and so photography was always uh you know an interest of mine and, and my dad showing me how to use a camera when i was a kid and um and just kind of an interest in art in general i had a studio art degree um and but I was really interested in photography. And so that's how I came to it, um, you know, and met some met met Tommy and some other guys who were making films up in Minnesota. Uh, and I said, that sounds like fun. Would you mind if I stand behind a camera? And and they were more interested in what was happening in front of the camera at the time. So they said, sure, uh, we could always use another hand. And that's kind of what got me into film. Um, and that was more, you know, that was just kind of early, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, attempts at, uh, at comedy and drama. And, uh, those things are mostly buried for the better. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but during that process, we figured out, um, that we really did like film as a, as a medium, um, and that it had this incredible power, uh, for storytelling and for, um, you know, as a window, um, into, into the world. And, um, and documentary just kind of came at us because, um, you know, we were, we were making films and, uh, got that kind of classic advice to, you know, do what you know, to, um, to, you know, to tell the story, you know, and the, our first documentary feature was pond hockey. And that was because the first ever U S pond hockey championships were happening on uh, a lake there in downtown in, in, in Minneapolis. And as you know, that's uh, that's a great spectacle. We knew there was going to be something there. We didn't know what it would be, but, um, that was it. And it was in our own backyard and it's easy, you know, when you don't have any money, uh, right away and, uh, you're looking for something that's, that's easy to, to film and something that you're passionate about. Um, so that, uh, if it doesn't pan out, it's not, not a waste of your time. So that's, uh, that's how we got into documentary. And then from there, I think it's just been an evolution of our tastes, um, that comes with watching a lot of other films um and seeing um what other filmmakers are doing and, and how they tell stories and, and finding inspiration there to, to figure out what works best for us thank you uh and one of the one of the things you and i had uh, uh kind of chatted about before we were recording too was when i lived in minneapolis one of the things i loved about where i was located was i was so close to the uptown theater and mm -hmm. uh lagoon theater for all these different films and then coming to uh iowa city and having film scene here has been uh has been great uh can you walk me through kind of the 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 evolution of of film scene and then i do want to get to uh especially talking about the the campaign for uh the fundraising campaign and also just sure. where we're where we're going with covid so just a lot a lot there but if if you don't mind starting with just getting film scene off the ground and and why sure. that is culturally important to a to a community like Iowa City. Sure. Well, you know, for me, the, the my own personal um, kind of path to, to film scene did start in Minneapolis in, the, in that that very street corner intersection that, that you're talking about. I, I lived on Humboldt and Lake. And if anybody's been to uh, up into the uptown area of Minneapolis, uh, that's a couple blocks from both the Uptown Theater and Lagoon. So there were seven screens showing indie films, uh, art house films um, that I could walk to any day of the week. So I was there, you know, a couple times a week. Uh, it was it was easy. It was uh, it was fun. Um, and I missed that when I moved uh, to Iowa City. Uh, and I found, you know, I found a lot of those films at the Bijou um, 
the Bijou Cinema on the University of Iowa campus, but you know that was up in the Illinois room at the time. Uh, it was not the best movie going experience. It was only open. The showtimes were kind of hard to follow sometimes. It changed, uh, and they were not considered theatrical by the distributors, which meant the films would often show up here later than than they would be in theaters around the country. And so, you know, I kind of saw that uh, that there could be there could be something better for this community um, in terms of uh, the movie going experience for the broader community. Um, and um, my film scene co-founder, Andy Brody, who was a, a former director of the Bijou Cinema, and, and uh, I had met him uh, writing uh, or uh, taking photos for a piece in Little Village about the Bijou. And so we just kind of became a, um, you know, friends. And uh, after his time there, uh, he also wanted to see something a little bit more robust for cinema culture here in Iowa City. So it was a matter of, again, kind of looking elsewhere to see what works um, in other communities. And we found that that a nonprofit model was really one that we thought would fit well here in Iowa City, um, both culturally and, um, you know, uh, logistically, financially. So um, this idea of a, of a nonprofit cinema was born uh, in 2011. We, we founded the organization. Uh, we did some pop-up screenings for a number of years before we found a location on the Ped Mall that we could you know shoehorn a, a 65 seat theater into um and from then on uh, it was just kind of this um you know building relationships with the community and bringing people on board and and helping them see uh the potential of of what um, a dedicated cinema could do um for um for film culture but also just for the community um and uh, i think we've been incredibly fortunate along the way that uh that people here in Iowa City recognize um, the value in that, um, and they're so supportive. And it's it's one of the reasons that that I have happily stayed in Iowa City. I always thought I'd move back to the Twin Cities. I think, um, but but I'm not going anywhere. And Iowa City is my home. And one of the reasons is it's it's a place where um, good ideas uh, find support, and doors are open, and um, people rally um, to get behind. Um, good ideas. And um, so I, I just think it's a, it's a great place um, for, for creative people to be. And, uh, and I'm incredibly thankful for that. So I, I did not get to take advantage of it, but uh, was like enthralled with the idea of the rooftop screenings. Uh, I know early on, I believe there were even some, some kind of fundraiser element that you could uh, like donating to to mm. film scene and being able to have a screening on the rooftop. Do, do, Obviously, with COVID, it's not happening. But were the the uh, rooftop screenings? Do those still take place at the original well, location? Yeah, that was that was something that uh, yes was a was a perk uh, from that original Kickstarter that we did. Uh, but yeah, we uh, for many years when the Ped Mall operation was our only home, uh, we had uh, a summer rooftop series, and you know you can it's an outdoor pop-up setup, but we could fit 40, 45 people up there. And uh, it was just a great place for kind of some, you know, classic uh, popcorn films, um, comedies from the eighties and, uh, you know, big Spielberg blockbusters and things like that. Um, so it was a pretty festive uh, place. And, uh, you know, I, we didn't do that this summer for obvious reasons, but uh, you know, uh, in, in this summer we're not doing it because things are a little bit too uncertain. So um, hopefully that's something that, that comes back in the future. But uh, you know, in in the kind of time that we've been shut down, we've been able to make a lot of headway on uh, a new outdoor space, um, which we call Film Scene in the Park, uh, which is 
uh, an outdoor cinema uh, in the Chauncey Swan Park right here downtown Iowa City. The park has been, uh, you know, beautifully redesigned with this natural uh, amphitheater. Uh, it can hold a few hundred people easily, even in COVID times. Uh, and we've got a 50-foot screen uh, that we are attaching to the side of the Chauncey Swan parking ramp. Uh, so it's going to be, uh, I hope, a, a really awesome cinema experience. And um, and so that uh, we've got a an inaugural year worth of programming that we've announced. Uh, it's all free to the public. So we hope people um, can make it down when it's convenient to them and take it in. And, uh, and, and, you know, to allude to one of your other questions, the reason that we were able to do that is because of, again, of community support. This was one of the objectives that we had as part of our Strength and Grow Evolve collaborative campaign with the Angler Theater, uh, where we were investing in our organizations for the future, um, both the facilities as well as the programming. Um, and, and that uh, multi-million dollar campaign uh, it was like the biggest, uh, you know, campaign that outside of the university that anybody had, had uh engaged in in this area and so it was uh it was a really big effort and the community again rose to the challenge responded um, we were able to build our new space here at the chauncey the angler was able to invest in the preservation and modernization of that incredibly historic building uh and one of the one of the perks that we got out of it was the ability to pursue this outdoor cinema so uh i think that's going to be a special treat for people and um we're excited to welcome the community in uh this summer for free because they're the ones that really helped make as possible. Yeah, that's great. I know my family was super excited when we uh, saw just in the, in the news, the, uh, the film scene in the park series getting announced and also just with, with the new construction and uh, you know, the, the Chauncey Swan area with also the farmer's market. It's just such a, like a heart of Iowa city kind of thing that, but we're really excited to experience what it's going to be to, to see a movie. Uh, from that kind of amphitheater, yeah. With the with the uh, strength to grow evolve campaign and the the greatest city for the small arts, uh, did did that campaign start before you had plans to expand, or or was it you had the plans to to build the new film scene, and then then this was a way to to fund it. And where my curiosity is coming from too, is I love the partnership with the angler, right? Where seeing, seeing in a smaller community, people working together rather than kind of a fixed kind of pie mindset. Like if we work together, there's a lot more that we can do. So, uh, I was a big fan of the campaign, big fan of the angler, uh, big fan of film scene, but just from a kind of insider view, how did those things come together, both the campaign and, and getting the new facility off the ground? Yeah, well, from the film scene side of things, uh, we always had designs on a, a new purpose-built home for film in this community. Um, so we had been working with our partners, Moen Group and Rohrbach uh, Associates, the architects on this project, uh, all the way back since before we opened our Pedmall location. So uh, since about 2012, I believe. Um, and it was in this project in particular was a response to uh, a city RFP um, for, uh, you know, what this plot of land here, this quarter city block. Um, so we had those plans in motion after that project was selected um, for this space. Uh, we knew that we would be building towards that at some point. Uh, 
I think with that knowledge and uh, our close pl- partnership collaboration with the Englert, uh, I think it was it was natural that we kind of both came to the table saying, hey, you know, it looks like we both have some real needs uh, for the future, uh, capital needs. And exactly what you said, w- maybe it would be better if we work together on this because it is a small city. Um, it's a very, you know, people here are very generous and very supportive, um, but there's a, there's a limit um, to the, to what people can do here. Uh, and we don't want to be following each other around the community um, competing uh, for the same donors or for the same support. Uh, when really what we're doing is we're all working to the same goal, which is uh, to create a better arts ecosystem uh, in this community. And so uh, with that in mind, uh, you know, this really is shared vision. So why don't we work together? And um, it took a lot of time to work through what that meant um, financially, uh, from a communication standpoint, you know, how do we balance uh, the work uh, and, and you know, what, what happens if we come up short, what happened, you know, uh, what happens if we exceed our goal, what, all these questions that had to be answered. But, uh, but really, I think, again, what I think is just absolutely uh, amazing about this community in particular is that uh, everybody entered those conversations um, with, with curiosity and open-mindedness and, and saying, if we do this right, uh, it really has uh, an opportunity to, to create better things and to, to elevate all of our work uh, and to inspire people. And I, I, I think it did. I think, uh, you know, it was one of our one of our board members, Andy Stoll, who a lot of people around here know, um, who's kind of an entrepreneur himself, very much so, uh, and a former, you know, cinema uh, Bijou uh, director. But he said, you know, it seems like we're, we're doing something bigger here. Uh, like we're building the greatest small city for the arts or something, you know, to that extent. And he said, that's it. That's what we that is what we're doing. Um, that's our vision. Um, and I think that's an ongoing process. I don't think we'll ever say, yes, we built it, stamp it, we're done. Uh, it's, a, it's a process and it's kind of a commitment, uh, I think, really, to always uh, improving what, we, what we're doing here. Uh, and I think this community has embraced it. We've seen those words uh, used by other arts organizations, other cultural organizations. So I think, um, you know, we just, we can all keep, keep working towards that. Yeah, thanks. And and to your point about uh, kind of the the community element, community excitement, support, pride, uh, just from going around the city, seeing the number of people that had uh, greatest small city for the arts yard signs, and also uh, you know modifying their their Facebook profile pictures. I, you know, lots of my friends having uh, kind of having the watermark version of it as part of their profile. It was, it was interesting to me just like how much, uh, it, it really kind of, uh, chained out through, through the community and that they could, could, you know, see themselves as a part of it and, and also wanting to help support it. And that campaign officially closed though. Is that right? That recently? Yeah. Yeah. We, um, you know, COVID altered our plans a little bit. Uh, the pandemic did, uh, so we wanted to close that that campaign out uh, at the end of 2020 um, because uh, because we were so close and we wanted to make that final push uh, as well as you know there are other people doing good work in this community and we we need to make room for them so yeah. uh, we we finished up um, uh, in December 2020 uh, you know there were some gifts that trickled over into 2021 there's a few that keep coming in I think right now we're at 5.4. Five million dollars raised, so uh, very, very, very close to our five point five uh, goal that we had we had stated. Um, 
late last year. And uh, so, you know, the campaign's been a success. Um, it's given us the resources that we need to invest in our facilities um, and to make some programmatic commitments moving forward. And um, it's incredible what this community has done. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm so proud of the work that we've done. I'm so grateful to the community and, and I'm excited for, uh, you know, the, whoever's next um, to, to try to, uh, you know, lend a hand and, and be supportive of all the other people that are doing great things here. Thank you. And thinking about just uh, growth, transformation and restoration, uh, just when you mentioned where you were living in, in Uptown, because I was uh, lived, I lived by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. So I was on Third Avenue, like basically 24th and 3rd. So right, you know, right near Nicollet and Electric Fetus uh, uh, record store. But then uh, we had a house basically at 36 and Colfax. Uh, so just a few blocks walk to, you know, we were six blocks south of Lake, right? So uh, Lynn Lake and Uptown were really close. But have you been back recently uh, to the Uptown area? I have, you know, I haven't been back uh, super recently, surprisingly. Um, anecdotally, I also lived at thirty the 3,500 block of Colfax. So I guess maybe at did, one point. Did you really? Just, yeah, just a block <laughs> apart. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Because um, uh, kind of the old school things that I loved, uh, you know, we had had two corner markets, had a, uh, a hardware store that also had a barbershop connected to it. Uh, it was, it was still, a, you could still see like remnants of old Minneapolis plus yeah. like all the, all the interesting element, right? You're close to the lakes and yeah. so many different things going on. But uh, we, we try to get back on a regular basis with the kids to show the kids where they were born. Cause they, they were three years old in six months oh, okay. when we, when we left. Uh, but the the like the Calhoun Square area. Every time I go back, I almost don't recognize it because there's there's so many taller buildings and condos and mm. uh, it just a lot a lot has changed and and I I miss kind of the a little bit of the uh, maybe grungier aspect of of yeah. uptown at times. Well, I, you know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because. Uh... Uptown, when I lived there, very much was kind of, I think everybody knew it was kind of the up and coming neighborhood, um, but it was, you know, gentrifying. Um, there were changes happening when I was there, but it still had that kind of eclectic um, Minneapolis <clears throat> vibe. My favorite restaurant at the time was this tiny little hole in the wall shack sandwiched between buildings that served uh, roti. Um, kind of a, a Caribbean uh, joint that didn't even have a sign on the front. Uh, it was just a purple awning. And, uh, and, you know, we'd go to the VFW hall, which was right there for karaoke and cheap drinks. And um, so, it was, it, you know, I, to your point, I, I doubt either of those buildings are still there and things have changed very much. Um, and I think it's something that we all hear, in, you know, we see, we see some of those issues here in Iowa city, right. Where um, we're challenged, I think, to make sure that we're thoughtful about how we preserve some of the things that make Iowa city, Iowa city. Um, and some of our, you know, uh, you know, the amazing historic buildings we have downtown and um, the, the feel, um, the ambiance of our downtown uh, that comes with that at the same time. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of positive things that come with having, um, you know, uh, growth um you know building up uh, in the downtown yep, area yep. um instead of building out into farmland um i think uh you know it does bring uh, additional kind of electricity to the downtown environment to have people of um you know various people living near downtown i think we need to do more um to make sure that that it is um 
easier for anyone who wants to or needs to uh, to be able to to live and work uh, yeah. in downtown. So, um, you know, I do think it's a, it's an important thing um, for this community to to keep an eye on. It is interesting to I was uh, uh, impressed with what's going on with the the, the Ped Mall renovation. Uh, how basically protecting the original buildings and having a facade. Uh, you know, that's still protected, but then building new. Uh, you know, so a good mix of new and young. So if you're on the Ped Mall, you're still going to maintain, you know, here, here are buildings that are well over 100 years old. Uh, there's that energy, but also uh, bringing in some new elements. So I'm really curious on how that might, might uh, how it ultimately plays out. But conceptually, I, yeah. I love the idea. Right. I think, um, you know, I hope that, uh, that that's a, that's a good project for downtown. Certainly it, it, um, we're excited, uh, again, talking about the arts, uh, right across the street from us on the Ped Mall now will be a new home for Riverside Theater, um, which is an organization that has done so much to build, um, the arts culture that we have here in Iowa city. And, uh, so we're excited for them to get a new home. Um, it's going to do wonders for what they're able to present, um, and the atmosphere that they can create. Um, so that's very exciting. That's, uh, I think to me, undeniably a good thing for this community to have that that home and and let's hope that uh, you know that uh, the the development that we see around it is is being done um, responsibly you know I think that's what that's what everybody's trying to keep an eye on here is is how are we how are we devoting resources to housing um, and and development um, and uh, you know I think there are improvements that we can make um, in terms of, of equity and um, so I think it's good that uh, that we keep the pressure on, but uh, yeah. but it, it's nice to see that uh, that people want to be here um, and they want to be downtown, and that um, that I think we've you know it's a reflection of what's been created here, um, and so many people have been a part of that, and I hope that uh, people can continue to be included in that. Thank you. Uh, as a creative, as a craftsperson, one of the things I'm curious about is in your in your work, do you ever feel stuck? And if so, what are, what are your techniques for kind of getting unstuck? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think um, it 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 is easy to get uh, to get stuck. Um, I think part of uh, my my most basic uh, technique uh, for countering that is to just do something new, uh, <laughs> which uh, you know I'm fortunate enough to. Uh, to, to kind of work in a field where that's that's possible but um sometimes um you know the just putting a you know putting a new goal on your uh on your list um off in the future then creates uh, kind of this natural path then you have to figure out how to get there um so when we say we want to build an outdoor cinema in the park when we say that we don't really know what's required to make that possible but uh we put it out there and we publicly said this is something that we want to do and then um it, it, we had to find a way um and that was that process of uh, uh of exploration and discovery to figure out how to make something happen um i really enjoy that process um and sometimes that you have no choice uh but to to move forward um and so uh that uh I learned that actually back going back to Minneapolis. I I, I kind of learned that from uh, I was out of shape in Minneapolis, and I was like, I got to get back into shape. So I signed myself up for a marathon, never having run more than a five k in my life. And then it was like, well, now I have to do it. Now I got to start running, <laughs> or I won't make it. Did you run the Twin Cities Marathon? I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's 
it's a it's a gorgeous gorgeous uh 26.2 miles (laughs) it is yes it's a long way uh i don't know that i've run 26.2 miles total since that day but uh but it was you know it was it was again it was was one of those things where i you you set set a goal for yourself and figure out how to make it happen that's funny because yeah i uh it was 2001 i ran the twin cities marathon and at one point uh one of my uncles who uh lived in the twin cities and and was also a runner uh he he did laugh he said you made the mistake of telling a lot of people that you're going to run the marathon right so now you have to do it (laughs) exactly when you're doing those you're building up on those training runs but then on the weekends when they're getting to okay it's a 14 mile run on saturday morning or okay it's a 20 mile run and when you're doing those and it's it's still it's even if you get up early, August in, in the Twin Cities can still be pretty hot and muggy and, and still trying yeah. to get that done before it gets too hot. And yeah, and I just, my my experience, I remember it, it felt like the halfway point was probably at 20 miles. It was the, the last like five to six oh, miles yeah. of that marathon were the kind of hardest. <laughs> well, you hit, uh, you know, if, if anyone knows the Twin Cities, you get, you cross the river from Minneapolis to St. Paul. And then it's uphill uh, <laughs> once you get into St. Paul. Now, I think that's at about 17, it might be 20, I don't know. Somewhere in the the last third of the, the marathon, all of a sudden you're just going uphill for miles. Oh, right, yeah. right. It's uh, it's beautiful, <laughs> but it's uh, it hurts. <laughs> uh, so one of, one of the things I wanted to ask you about for a film scene, just out of curiosity, is the curation aspect with all of the, the movies that are out there and screens and time that you have to, to dedicate uh to me it seems like it might be a, a fairly daunting and chaotic task to like organize like we we think this would be good for our audience or we're going to pass on this movie what does the process look like to to put to put film to screen over a period of time for uh, uh for for customers to come in and see yeah well um we've got a programming director rebecca Fons, who um Actually, unfortunately, is uh, is heading back to her uh, her Chicago uh, here for a new job. So we're we're bringing someone new in, which is always there's always good energy when that happens. Um, we're very much going to miss Rebecca. She's done a tremendous job, but uh, you know, new ideas are always welcome. Um, so that can be exciting. Uh, but it's really the programming director's job to to do that. I mean, that is a that is a very important uh, position here at Film Scene. And so uh, you know, we just barely had the chance to scratch the surface of five screens um, before the pandemic hit but it offers us uh you know incredible flexibility and and we were so happy to get to that point because uh you know one of the reasons that we we exist is to bring unique cinema to this community that would not otherwise show so uh having more screens certainly gives us the opportunity to showcase some of those smaller films um which certainly aren't going to play uh at any of the multiplexes um and oftentimes those are those are those you know beautiful films that that don't always you know they don't have huge marketing budgets so sometimes they slip under people's radar but um we try to showcase them and i think one of the um one of the greatest compliments that we've received over the years is that people trust our curation and that they will, they will just show up on a Friday night or they'll just say, let's go to film scene and see what's playing. Um, and to me, that is, um, that's an incredible compliment um, to know that people um, are here for the experience. They trust what we, we deliver um, and they're willing to just show up kind of, uh, you know, un- uninformed and just see what's, what's playing. But, but I think the other thing that it allows us to do now with five screens 
We've got a lot of community partnership uh, series, um, whether it's Pride at Film Scene, uh, our picture show series presented by Midwest One, which is uh, a family and children's series, uh, which is free for kids. So we can introduce them to the big screen experience and some more challenging film and media literacy stuff. Um, and then even, you know, I think we've we've stretched even a little bit into some, some bigger films um, that we wouldn't have played before. Um, it's still important to us to, there, there has to be a reason why we would play it. We won't just play any old, uh, I shouldn't, I, I love big yeah. blockbusters too, but, um, but you know, those already have a home in our community. So right. uh, we try to showcase films that are, that are, you know, we have the opportunity now to showcase some bigger films um, that are still, you know, either auteur driven or, you know, awards contenders or things that, uh, that we know are going to be, uh, you know, big hits or will bring people in uh, that might be new to film scene and they might not have already built that familiarity with some of our, uh, you know, our, our more traditional art house uh, curation. And so it's an opportunity for us to get new audiences in, um, show them tra trailers for other films um, that they may not have on their radar. Uh, and it introduces people to uh, an entire world of movie going that I think, you know, for a lot of folks, uh, they just aren't exposed to because it's not what exists on multiple screens at the multiplexes around the country. And so um, that is part of our work is building new audiences and, um, and, and bringing in new people. Um, so with five screens, we can, we can, we can go big, we can go small. Um, we have lots of room for partnerships. Uh, we're really excited about what the future offers. That's great. Thank you. And uh, just from uh, from our family perspective, too, is uh, enjoy taking the kids uh, to the uh, the animated shorts, the, you know, like leading up to the Oscars. But the, that's yeah. something that you don't get to see. Right. And easily. So having that here that and, and the kids, kids love that one. And then also just want to want to thank the film scene team, too. I know there's uh, my daughter's done this before my son will be doing uh, animation camp in the future, mm -hmm. right? So just exposing them to different elements of creativity and craft. And uh, I love, I love those connections that film scene has to the community as well. It's not just the, you know, art house stuff basically for, for people 20 to 30, right? It's, you know, all, all members of the community are, are welcome. And so I really do appreciate that, that level of programming. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, if you read our mission uh, or, you know, our tagline is Iowa City's nonprofit cinema. So obviously we're here to present film as an art form, but really I think at the heart of it, uh, we are a community organization. We're a community building organization. Uh, and we do that through the art of film. Um, so whether that's teaching kids how to be creative and how to make their own work, uh, or whether that's, you know, putting on uh, a big show that brings in big audiences, um, you know, it's, uh, it's just a chance to, and this is something I think we've all missed so much over the last year is it's a chance to connect with people, um, with your neighbors and friends and family, uh, as well as complete strangers, just to, uh, you know, to have that shared experience um, and have that communal, uh, especially a communal arts experience. And I think um, it moves us and connects us to our world in a way that few other things can. Uh, and I think we've all missed that incredibly. Um, this year um, and i'm excited to get back to it i don't I, you know i don't remember a year uh in the last decade where i've watched fewer films than i did this year you'd think that there was all the time in the world during this um, <laughs> right. to watch movies but i just found i it, it, 
maybe it's zoom fatigue or whatever, but I, I don't have the desire to, you know, to have more screen time. Um, and I think big screen time is a much different thing. Um, yep. it's, it's going out of the house. It's, it's, uh, laughing and crying together. Uh, it just feels so much different. Um, and so I think we all need that again and I'm excited to have that again. Yeah, I'm I'm missing missing that as well because I you know for me my general mode was with friends or like when my wife and I were dating or you know also the four kids was if we were gonna do like dinner and a movie it was always I'd always want to go to the movie first so that we could then talk about the movie during dinner or drinks right and just kind of missing that element too of. Uh, the social side of films where like just deconstructing something like what did you like not like uh, and all the conversation about new works of art that just seem like it's gone dormant for me in this past year. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Um, you know, even the things that I am uh, consuming at home, you know, whether it's a, a series or a film or new music, it's yeah, I don't, I don't have the natural opportunities maybe to, to talk about it um, right. besides my own family, which is great, of course. But, but I think that's a big part of it is it's a chance to, um, to make those connections with our, with our friends. And, um, and, and so that's, that's what's become so much, much harder. And it's such a big part of the experience that I don't think we always talk about. Um, that really, uh, it's, it's, it, is a, it is about sharing um, the art um, as much as it is about experiencing it for ourselves. Thanks. And Andrew, before we go, one of the last topics I, I like to cover with guests is just it broadly is the notion of advice, but is there good advice that you look back to that you received from, from a mentor or uh, maybe there's advice you wish you would have had that you might give to, to others as you know, they go down a, a creativity or, or craft kind of road? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, uh, I think a revelation um, that I've, I've had over many years is that uh, it always takes takes more than one person, um, whatever your dream might be, uh, you need a, you need a collaborator or a supporter or someone who believes in you to encourage you. Um, and so I think what I've learned along the way is, uh, is to really share um, you know, share your goals with people, um, share the experience with them, bring them along um, and, and involve them in a meaningful way, an authentic way. Um, I think many of our film projects, uh, we've had like a crowdfunding element to it and it's built an authentic community um, that really cares about the project because they have a stake in it. Um, and I think film scene, absolutely. I think that is the, the most critical thing to our success here is that even from the first day we opened, there were 800 people in this community that had given, whether it was $1,000 or $1, they had, uh, they had a little piece of that or a big right. piece of that. Um, and it was, and it was real. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's about sharing success. Um, and, uh, and I think to me that, uh, you know, is the energy that, that makes these things possible. Um, and so that's, uh, I always return to that. That's great. And thank, thank you for, for all that you're doing for the community to you and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the whole film scene team and really appreciate you taking the time to, to walk through your, your journey and interest with us here on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs>